Morning. Uh, welcome to Jubilee Church. Um, if you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 25. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 25. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries. I'll be projecting it on the screen uh, later on. I'm Raj. I'm one of the elders here at Jubilee. If you're a visitor here, once again, welcome. Uh, thank you for coming. If you're a student checking us out for the first time, um, then you are really welcome. As uh, Simon said, please uh, join us for the meal afterwards. Um, just, um, I'm just going to say a few things about Alpha. We did have Alpha on Thursday. We kicked, Alpha kicked off on Thursday. It was fantastic. It was a real buzz to it. Um, quite a lot of guests, I think at least 20 guests. Um, some of them are here. I won't embarrass them. Um, and uh, everybody had a great time. Danita gave her testimony. Uh, so can I encourage you, there's still time to bring people on Alpha. Um, so if you do want to do that, please let Stuart and Shirley, not me, please let Stuart and Shirley know. If you need lifts to come to Alpha, also have a chat with Stuart and Shirley. Also, just an extra to that baptisms thing. Baptisms notice. It's great to have baptisms, but can I just say, invite your guests. A lot of you might not know that. Um, but when, when, when you get baptized, ask your friends to come along. They'll probably say yes, and I'll be preaching the gospel that morning and hopefully um, explaining why Jesus is important. Um, so, as most of you know, we've been unpacking the uh, book of James. Over the last few weeks, the more and more I get into this book, I realize how fascinating this book is, full of truth and wisdom straight at you, provocative, often outrageous, God-inspired truth. And you know what? This morning is going to be no different. Um, so let's get straight in, shall we? James chapter 2, uh, verses 14 to 25. What good is it, my brothers? If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith uh, by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the devil, devils believe that and shudder. You foolish person, you want evidence? Faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. <gasps> Let's pray. We'll need it. Yeah, I thank you, Lord, for this scripture. I'm not really. No, I, am th I thank you, Lord, for every word in scripture. I thank you that you challenge us. 
I thank you that you have difficult passages in the Bible because there are things that you want to teach us. And I pray, Spirit of God, teach us this morning. I pray, Spirit of God, as I bring, uh, as I unpack uh, this um, passage, I pray, Spirit of God, let our hearts be open to the truth. Lord, I pray you move us. I pray against any thoughts of um, condemnation or legalism, but I pray that faith rises in this room this morning as we unpack your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So there you have it. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Or more accurately, of the translations say, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow! Did you hear that? That's probably one of the most theologically controversial statements in the Bible. We are considered righteous by God because of our works, what we do, and not by trusting in Jesus alone. That's what you've just heard. Isn't that a contradiction to everything you've been taught at Jubilee over the last 13 years? Haven't you been told that the big difference between the Christian faith and virtually every other faith was that our intimate relationship with God is based purely on what Jesus did on the cross, not because of anything we did, not by our good works, not by our morality. We didn't earn it. He earned it for us. Isn't that the very foundation of everything we believe? Justification, not by works, but by faith alone. You know what? Throughout history, people have died for that truth. And now, this morning, 7th of October, in the year 2012, at approximately quarter to 12, here at Jubilee, we tell you a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Da, da, da! <laughs> Jubilee, have you just witnessed the end of this church? Is this the end of Christianity? As we know it, Paul's getting a little bit worried. I can see that. Is the Bible not reliable anymore? I'm not going to keep you in suspense any longer. The short answer is no. Now for the long answer. We're still going to be running next week. So what on earth is James doing here? What on earth is he saying? Well, firstly... He's trying to get your attention. Has he got your attention? I think he has. He's got mine. So why is he doing it? Why? What is it that he's trying to get our attention about? Well, he wants us, James wants us to think. The phrases he uses quite deliberately, that we're not justified by faith, but we're justified by works, sounds so outrageous to everything we have ever heard before that it gets us to stop whoa, and think, slow down. And it gets us to think about faith, actually, in a much deeper way. You see, James, you see what James is getting at here is actually very different to what the Apostle Paul is getting at in a lot of his letters. They are not poles apart. I mean, we've got to give these guys a little bit of credit. Uh, at the end of the first century, when the church began to pull the church uh, to began to pull together the writings of the apostles as they were dying out, 
Um, they, had, they had no problem putting these letters together in their equivalent of the Bible of the time. They clearly didn't see thing, these teachings as being opposed. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put them in, would they? Not only that, in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, it tells us as historical fact um, that in the earliest days of the uh, Christian church, there was a great gathering of apostles. James and Paul included, they were there, called the Council of Jerusalem around AD 50, only 20 years after Jesus had died and rose again. And at this great gathering, um, this, exact, this, this matter is exactly what they discussed, justification by faith alone. And you know what? At the end of it, they all came away agreeing with one another. We are saved by faith alone and not by anything we do. So what's the deal with James 2? Here, James is making a different point. You see, he's using the, the word justify in a slightly different way. He's, he's being a little cheeky, really. That's, one of the, that's what, what intriguingly one of the commentators said about that. He's being a little mischievous. You see, the original word justify, dikeosuni, de, uh, uh, meant to be made righteous before God. It meant to be made it means to be made acceptable. It actually means, it means make right. And that's the common use of it by the Apostle Paul in his letters. But the word justify, then and now, can also mean something slightly different, can't it? Let me give you an example. When you say, um, 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 Jonathan, justify that statement, or Jonathan, justify what you've just said there. What, what, what are we saying? You're not saying, make that statement right, Jonathan. No. You're saying, demonstrate it's right. Prove it's right. Show me, give me evidence that what you're saying is true. Different use of the same word justify, and that is what's going on here. When James says we are justified by our works, what he's saying is that if you want to know that you have a living faith, a faith rooted in the free grace of Jesus, a faith that is growing and is alive to God, you'll see it by what you do, your outward works. And that's the point of this passage this morning. That's the reason why James wants to get our attention. Uh, a, chat, a guy called Philip Melanchthon he was the, uh, the great 16th century reformist friend of Martin Luther, interestingly. He put it perfectly when he took the two truths of Paul and James and he pulled them together and he said this, a living faith is the efficacious burning trust in the mercy of God which never fails to bring forth good fruits. A living faith is that which pours itself out in works. In other words, and hear this, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. And so in this passage, James gives us three examples. Three examples of describing, if you like, the thermometer of growing faith in our, our life. If you want to know uh, what your, uh, whether your faith is moving on, vibrant, alive to God, 
James says, look at these three things in this passage. And the three things are, how are you growing in the knowledge of God, the Word of God? Secondly, how are you growing in your love and compassion towards other people? And thirdly, how are you growing in your trust and love towards God, towards Jesus? So that's where we're going to be going this morning. So first point, a living faith, a living faith yearns to grow in the Word of God, the truth of God, the knowledge of God, if you like. So he says in verse 9, doesn't he, you believe there is one God. Good. Now, although this is my first point, I'm not actually going to say much about this. We've talked about it a few times, haven't we? Certainly Paul, uh, Paul has drummed this fact into us lots over the last few weeks. Knowing God, understanding God, reasoning out the nature and wonder of God through the Bible is very important, very important to the life of a Christian. Theology matters, remember? In fact, we were only talking about, myself, Simon, and um, Paul, we were only talking about this the other day. One of the things that saddens me is that we as a culture seem to want to bypass the study of the Bible. Our time is spent primarily on ministry and doing things rather than growing in the knowledge of God, rather than spending hours in the Word of God. Why? Because we live in a world that honors performance over character. What you achieve is the big deal, and our culture will take any shortcut to get there. And I just want to say, Jubilee, do not take this shortcut. Leaders particularly here, growing in your ministry, I think I said this a few weeks ago, growing in your ministry at a pace faster than your growth in God, in God's truth, will only burn you out, will only run you dry. Don't do it. Leaders particularly. So, theology, study of the Bible, growing in your knowledge of God matters. It really does. But James's point here is a little bit more scary. He's saying something slightly different, a little bit shocking. Um, a guy called Jonathan Edwards um, preached quite a frightening sermon in 1752 on exactly this verse, verse 19. You believe that there is one God good, even the demons believe that and shudder. And he called his sermon on that verse, true grace distinguished from the experience of devils. They don't make sermon titles like they used to, do they? (laughs) True grace distinguished from the experience of devils. And he said quite scarily, really, that there are qualities to yours and my Christian walk which, we are, com- which are completely good, perfectly wonderful, but even doing these things diligently, enthusiastically, might only mean that you are no, that you are no more better than just a demon. You see, you can know the Bible inside out. You can know the attributes of God inside out. You may have studied the life and death of Jesus like no one else, but all of that doesn't necessarily tell you that your faith is dynamic, growing, and vibrant. Why? Because even the demons, even the devil knows all that stuff. That's what it says. Jonathan Edwards says that Satan 
has been to the greatest Bible college in the whole universe. Did you know that? The very throne room of heaven before the very presence of God. He knows the truths and details of God far better than you and me. In fact, more than that, not only does Satan know all this stuff, he believes it. He respects it. His life is affected by it, guided by it. It makes him shudder, scared. Everything about God affects how the devil operates and thinks and moves. It does, more than us sometimes. Do you believe what James is saying here in verse 19 is quite eye-opening? You may study the Bible. Your life might be greatly affected by it to the point of ever-increasing morality and good behavior and excellent religious practice out of the fear of God, out of knowing God, out of believing all that you know. But those things in themselves don't distinguish you even from demons. This is very close to the line, isn't it? I can see from your faces. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's nothing wrong with living a moral life. There's nothing wrong with living your life based on the truth of God. There's nothing wrong with trying to understand and grow in your knowledge of God. Of course there isn't. That's not what he's saying. All that is good. It's very good. But what he's saying is that those things in themselves don't prove that you have a living faith, a real faith, a saving faith. That's what he's saying. Let me paraphrase what James is saying differently, and I hope this is helpful. A person with saving faith will have all of these things, but a person who has these things doesn't necessarily have saving faith. Scary? So what else is there? What else can we look for in faith that is alive to God? So second point, saving faith is alive towards other people. What does verse 14 say? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. What's he saying? It's very challenging again. He's saying that if you get into the presence of broken people, homeless people, hurting people, poor people, people who are very different from you, and you respond with either scorn or indifference, without love, without care, just being critical, just being judgmental, you don't have a living faith. Your faith is not in tune with God's heartbeat towards other people. So what is it? So what does a faith that is alive to God look like? What are its characteristics? Quickly, three things. It's radical. A faith that is alive to God is radically generous, it's radically gracious, and it's radically practical. So firstly, it's radically generous. As Christians, our faith in us produces lavish generosity. It does. Let me, share, you, let me um, share with you something I came across re recently when looking at the Bible. 
By the way, I've read a lot of very challenging things this week, uh, and this is just another one. The eighth commandment of um, Moses' ten commandments, it says this, Exodus 20, you shall not steal, you shall not steal. Fair enough. In Ephesians 4, the apostle Paul picks this exact command up, and as ever, with new covenant thinking and behavior, he raises the bar completely. He challenges our understanding of this. Ephesians 4.28 says this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no more, but must work so that they have something to share with those in need. What's he saying? It's startling, really. The Apostle Paul is basically saying that a thief hasn't stopped being a thief until he's radically generous. To obey the Eighth Commandment, it's not enough just to stop stealing. No, no. That's not what Paul is saying here. To really obey involves a life of radical generosity, radical giving. You can see it in Malachi 3 again. God warns the people of God. Uh, God warns the people of God. Will a mere mortal rob God? God says, yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. Do you see? A biblical understanding of not stealing from God isn't just about what we are taking, but what we are giving away, our tithes and offerings, because it's all his in the first place. You see, we make excuses all the time, don't we? If I had enough for myself to get by, if I had enough for myself to get by, well, maybe then I'd give more away. Or I can make, if, I can make, uh, or I can make ends meet. I can only just make ends meet myself. Never mind others. How can I afford to help people like that? To the degree the Bible says, I can't afford to do it. But the Bible says, our mirror, mirror on the wall, says, Jesus says, I want your heart. Um, Jonathan Edwards once said, you might remember this from before, he says, remember Galatians 6.2 when it says, bear one another's burdens. We are obliged by the gospel to give to others even when it causes suffering on ourselves. Otherwise, how are we bearing someone else's burdens? If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do you bear your neighbor's burdens when you only do it by bearing no burden at all? Do you see what he's saying? It's terribly challenging. He, he says, when you and I say, I can't afford to give, what we mean is we can't afford to give to the poor and the needy without it burdening me, without it hurting my living standards, without it making me radically sacrificial. And Jesus and James say, yes, that's exactly right. You've got it. There's no such thing as a person who can afford to help. If in, in fact, if you can afford to help, Jesus says you're not helping enough. Ouch. Jubilee, a life brimming with faith, shows itself in radical, cheerful generosity. How's your giving? That was one of the most releasing questions that Jeremy asked me about three months into becoming a Christian some years ago. 
And I don't just mean your money, but your time, your talents, your passions, your heart. Are you a radically generous, faithful giver? Secondly, a faith that's alive to God is radically gracious. When you show love and compassion, the love and compassion of Jesus, who do you show it to? The people you like, the people who you like, the people who like you maybe. You know what? That's great. That's excellent. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But what about the other people? What about the people who are different to you? What about the people from different countries and different social backgrounds? What about the homeless? What about those who've been in trouble with the law? What about, those, what about the drug addict? What about the drunk? What about the, those who are reckless? What about them? Jubilee, radical grace is extending the hand of forgiveness and action to those who don't deserve anything at all. And we are called by Jesus to leave to lead lives of radical grace towards other people. Not just those we like, but those who might be our worst nightmares. What are your prejudices? What are you really like with other people? What are you doing about it? So faith faith that's alive um, to God is alive to people. And it demonstrates itself in generosity, radical generosity, and radical grace. Thirdly, a faith that is alive to God shows itself in radical practicality. The message version of verses 15 to 16 gets this spot on. It says this, For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Brilliant. You know, when we read, when we read the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan a few weeks ago, we highlighted, didn't we, the fact that the Samaritan provided completely for the beaten up man in the street. He did everything. Despite the half-dead man in the street being the Samaritan's ultimate enemy, culturally different, racially different, religiously different, visually different, quite remarkably, this Samaritan stops, thinks, and despite all the barriers that he's got to get over, he gets off his donkey and meets this man's basic, desperate needs in every way. His practicality is jaw-dropping as he goes out of his way to provide for this man emotionally, physically, financially, medically, transportationally. Everything is covered. He holds nothing back. It's incredibly sacrificial. It's incredibly dangerous. It's practical through and through. You see, that's the challenge of God's mission to us, Jubilee, isn't it? That's what God is calling us to move to day by day. James says, I want you to look out there at people who you, don't ordinary, uh, who you ordinarily despise, who you'd normally not hang out with, with the ones who get up your nose, the ones who offend you, the ones, uh, and, and he says, I want you to meet their needs with such concreteness, with such sacrificial love, with such vigor and energy that as they receive your heartfelt compassion, 
they'll be astonished and they'll be bowled over and want to know what is it about you that makes you go to such lengths. That's what a saving faith looks like. Are you allowing God to move you in that direction? If not, why not? What's stopping you? Jubilee of faith that is thriving and alive to God is radically generous, is radically gracious, and is radically practical. There's a lot of silence in the room this morning. Now, we've got to be ever so careful here, haven't we? Because I know that even as I was writing this, I was feeling a bit beaten up. How are you feeling? Are you feeling a little guilty, maybe? Are you feeling a little condemned, maybe? Hearing this stuff might cause you to just switch off because it's so overwhelming. I do that often. Or it may make you go out and impulsively, after this service, donate a whole load of money to Open Door, some other charity. And you know what? By all means, go ahead. Big nod from Paul there and Andy. But my question to you is this. How do you know that all your actions, all your responses are nothing but shuddering? How do you know that if what you are doing is genuine faith as opposed to what we were talking about earlier? Because that's what this passage is about. James is not beating around the bush. What is the ultimate hallmark then of saving faith? Without which everything, without which everything we've talked about so far is nothing but shuddering. And that's the final point. The main point, really. Thirdly, a faith that is real, vibrant, growing, and genuine is first and foremost from our very depths of our heart alive to God, alive to Jesus. It's all to do with our heart. That's how you know whether all you do is out of saving faith and not just shuddering. A lot of people out there doing good in the world, that's good. The issue is what's motivating them. The issue is what's motivating you. You see, many of us, you see, for many of us, guilt can be the emotion that motivates us. You have, you have so much, they have so little. Don't feel bad now. Don't you feel bad? Now, come on, give it away. Guilt. That's what most of the TV ads say. But listen to this. The Bible is radical here. It doesn't say that at all. It says, if, actually, it says if that's your motivation, if guilt is your motivation, if guilt is driving you to do the things you do, then hold on, stop right there. Why? Because when you're motivated by guilt, it doesn't change you. It doesn't change you through and through. It doesn't change your heart. Good works out of guilt very rarely last very long. Guilt is just another form of shuddering. John Piper says, saving faith, a faith that is inspired by God, a faith that the Holy Spirit brings alive, a gift... He didn't say all that, by the way. Saving faith is by its nature a life-changing power. A power to produce fruit. 
So what is the opposite of shuddering? What's the opposite of a faith motivated by guilt? What is it? It's love. It's love. A faith that is motivated, a faith that is alive to God is motivated through and through by an intense, deep, passionate love for God, love for Jesus, love for the gospel, love for everything he's done for you, above everything else. And you see, that's the point um, of Abraham here in the passage. It says in verse 21, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete in what he did. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. So what's that, what's that saying? What's the deal about Abraham? In Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, he says this, he says, sacrifice your firstborn son. He says this, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Why does God say that? There was no, there was no law saying that you had to do that. Why did God ask him to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering? I'll tell you why. God wanted to see his faith for real. Abraham said, Abraham, he says, I want you to show me you love me from the deepest depths of your heart. I want you to do this for who I am. I want you to love me first above, above everyone, above everything else, even above Isaac, your only son whom you love. And as many of you know, the, uh, Abraham did as God asked him to. He gathered the wood. He took his beloved boy, up Mount Moriah, and he stretched him over a wooden altar to be sacrificed. He did exactly as God asked him to. But right at the very last minute, dagger in the air, a voice from heaven, the voice of God, cried, Stop! Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Such was Abraham's faith in God. Such was Abraham's love and trust towards God. You see, God, in essence, was saying to Abraham, I know now how much you love me because you were prepared to give me your one and only son who I know you love. What's love? You see, Love here wasn't just some fuzzy feeling. It wasn't a box of chocolates. It was real. It was tangible. God, without any doubt, knew Abraham's love and trust towards him by what he was prepared to do. His faith was made complete in what he did. That's what it says. Jubilee, is your faith growing in love for God? with an intensity and a passion and a zeal that you can sacrifice all the other Isaacs in your life. Like money, ambition, sex, relationships, self-image, importance. Are those things more important to you than God? 
Or is God your all in all? Because that's the kind of faith that God is looking for. That's the kind of faith that God is growing in you. Are you fighting him or are you cooperating with him? To end, uh, I remember talking to Will, Will Knight, uh, some time ago. He was babysitting for us, and I was having, you know, a typical teenager chat with him. And I asked him, so where... And I asked him, so, so where are you going after this? And he said, out. And I said, yeah, but yeah, yeah, but where? And he said, my friends. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's great, but what are you going to do? He said, I don't know. And I thought, don't you have any goals? No, I didn't. So I said, so I said what do you mean you don't know? You must know what you're going to do. Are you, are you going to go out? Are you going to go to a movie? What are you going to do? And he said, I don't know. We miss him. Oh, really? I mean that. In fact, I was texting Josh this morning. Um, but right there, it suddenly struck me as Josh said those words you know what? Uh, sorry, uh, Will said those words. It suddenly struck me. It didn't matter. It wasn't important. He just wanted to be with his friends just for who they were. It wasn't that he wanted to see a movie, so now he had to find a friend. <laughs> he just wanted to be with them. That is the kind of friendship jubilee that God wants from us. That's the kind of friendship that God had with Abraham. Jonathan Edwards uh, ends this sermon uh, on this passage like this. He says, Wicked people will on the day of judgment see all there is to see of Jesus Christ except his beauty and his loveliness. What is he saying? He's saying... False faith can see the holiness of God, the glory of God, the power of God, the authority of God, the majesty of God even. But the one thing that false faith can never see, that Satan can never see ever, is the beauty and loveliness of God. That's it. That's the ultimate expression of saving faith. True faith wants to please God, to be God, uh, to be with God, love God, just because of who he is. Not what you get, not, not for what you get, not for what you avoid. I love you, God. Why? Just because I love you. Years later, on the very same mount, actually, um, that Abraham took his son Isaac to, that very same craggy outcrop, the Romans called Calvary. And on Calvary, another firstborn son was, was to be stretched out on a piece of wood to die. Like Isaac, he wouldn't struggle or run away. He would trust his father and do what his father asked him to. And this time... On Calvary, when the beloved Son of God cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heaven would be silent. There'd be no, there'd be no voice saying, 
do not lay a hand on my boy. If you want to know what love is, that is it. If you're not a Christian here this morning, the, Christ, the faith that Christianity brings is not a fuzzy feeling. Love is a real, tangible thing that we see in Jesus and everything he's done for us. It says in the Bible, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, in Christ, God who put the wrong on him, Jesus, who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When you see, and I mean really see, the love of God for you in the cross, you know what it does? It melts your heart. And because of that, because of that, pleasing him, rejoicing him, becomes the joy of your soul. Not out of guilt anymore, but out of love. Life-changing, life-transforming, a life full of good works. That is faith in action, Jubilee. That is faith alive to God. Um, if the band can come up. Let's stand, let's pray.